son, and Abraham gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. 17.1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Strangely, there are 13 silent years that pass between Genesis 16.16 and Genesis 17.1. 13 years, it's almost like Abraham has no visit from God. Abraham has no voice from God for 13 years. Genesis 16, 16 ends with Ishmael was born and then it takes 13 years before Abraham hears from God again. It's not that God was upset. God had already credited to Abraham uh, his faith as righteousness. But sometimes things birthed from the flesh have to be taken care of before you can move on and birth things of the spirit. Hear me again. Sometimes things birthed from the flesh need to be taken care of. And God will give us time to nurture that which we have brought in flesh. Because that is still something that needs to be taken care of. Before God can now begin to renew birthing things by the Spirit. Ishmael was born, Ishmael needed to be taken care of. Once Ishmael was born, Sarah turned. Once Ishmael, Ishmael was born, Hagar's attitude changed. Once Ishmael was born, Sarah wanted Hagar removed. Once Ishmael was born, Abraham had to stand up for Hagar and Ishmael every so often. But that boy had to be taken care of because out of that boy would come a nation. Sometimes we think God's silence in a situation is because he's upset, he's angry, maybe you made a mistake. Sometimes it's not a mistake or anger, it is simply, Jacob, you have birthed this, I'll help you take care of it. But till we are done with it, I cannot go ahead with other things of the spirit. Because you have birthed something in the flesh, but I will take care of that too. But what happens in the process is that you do not hear about the things that have to be birthed of the spirit for the next little while. We've got to beware of that. Eh? I've got to beware of that. Both with the church and with what happens with what God is doing globally. The moment I start birthing things in the spirit. If you have a business, be careful that you don't start birthing things in the flesh. Because you will have to take care of it. And while you're taking care of it, God will be on pause because he'll help you take care of it. He doesn't abandon us because we, um, uh, we, we, we birth a mistake. What an odd God, eh? He doesn't cut you off because you made a mistake. But there's still a consequence and the consequence is now I have to take care of what has happened and then after that's taken care of I can get back to the things of the Spirit. I don't know how Abraham felt through 13 years of not hearing and not having visitations from God. And then suddenly in Genesis 17, it starts again. I think it's too high a cost to pay. As we uh, step into what God is doing across the earth in terms of this revival and what God is doing with... Uh, the young ones between the ages of 12 and well, the late 30s so that generations can be affected in the future of the earth. We have to make sure that what we birth, be it in a simple service like this or be it in actions in other parts of the world, is birthed from the spirit and is not flesh, that it is not sustained by flesh, that we do not breathe into it, we breathe the breath of the spirit into it. And then in Genesis 17, 1, God appears again as El Shaddai. The word El Shaddai, El Shaddai means um, there's, two, there's two sides to the El Shaddai coin. The first one is the one who is sufficient. The one who is sufficient. And the other side is the one who overpowers and destroys. And out of these two, we've come up with God Almighty. But the idea of God Almighty comes from, on one hand, the 
the fact that he is sufficient. There's nothing beyond him. You don't need anything past him. In him, everything is taken care of, contained. So on one hand, you have God Almighty, he who is sufficient. And on the other hand, you have he who can overpower and destroy. Nothing stands in his way. And out of that comes this idea of El Shaddai, God Almighty. That is the God who's involved with us and churches connected with us in this global movement. Takes courage and faith for me to say global movement because when we look at ourselves, we look so small and so ragtag. And yet there is this one who is sufficient and who is someone who can overpower and destroy everything that stands in the way and bring to pass what he wants to. And so El Shaddai appears to Abraham and then he gives Abraham a charge just as he did us. Now what is the charge he gave us? Let me read it out. And if you have it on the screen, the... Do you have the word on the screen that we can read together? Yeah. Let's read out the word that he gave us, the charge that he gave us. It's a charge, eh? Sometimes in thinking things are prophetic, we forget that it is a charge. It's a charge as in... This is what I'm charging you with. So here's what it says, and let's read it together. It's on, Don? Okay. And here's a charge he's giving me. Here's a charge he's giving you. So don't be afraid. I am with you. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. I will bring your children from the east and gather them from the west. I'll send orders north and south. I'll say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Return my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. I want them back, every last one of them who bears my name, every man, woman, and child whom I created for my glory. How wonderful and beautiful they will be. The young men will thrive on abundant grain, and the young women will flourish on new wine. They will spring up among the grass like willows by watercourses. You will raise up young men and young women, bishops in strong apostolic ministry, strong teachers, going out from your company, and they will reproduce this anointing. Your young people will freely join you at the break of dawn with all the vigor of youth resplendent in holy armor on the day of your conquest. That is the charge he's given us. When you're given a charge and when God is saying he'll do it, the way you receive a charge is to uh, read it as if you were saying it. So one of the ways you read this is to change it as if you were saying it. As in, I'm going to bring children from east and gather them from the west. I'm saying to the north and the south, give them up. I'm saying this to the south, do not hold them back. I'm saying return the sons from afar and daughters from the ends of the earth. I'm saying I want them back, every last one who bears the name of Jesus, every man, woman, and child created for his glory. You begin to declare it because it's a charge given to you. Whenever a charge is given to you, it is, I'm giving this to you so that you can steward it. So God gives Abraham a charge and there are two imperatives in this charge and I'm going to just write them down and it's the same thing that's being given to us today. So Genesis 17 is a pattern for us. So here are the two imperatives. Yeah. How do you know you have birthed something from the flesh? Um, it doesn't profit it needs a lot of taking care of um, in terms of your own sweat. Things that are birthed by the spirit, the question is, how do you know things that are birthed by the flesh? Here's how we distinguish it. One, uh, we look back and see how it was produced. Was it produced by the word of God and nothing? That is when you know something is of the spirit. Most things that are produced of the Spirit are the Word of God and nothing. Second, things that are produced by the Spirit have very little of your sweat involved in it. Your work 
is uh, the diligence that you show in fulfilling what God has asked you to do. There's no striving, no self-effort, no manipulation, no creating a bread out of stones, even though you have the power to. The most significant aspect of things that are created by the Spirit is that everything that is created by the Spirit is made up of just two things, the Word of God and nothing. Either the Word in Logos form or the Word in Rhema form and nothing else. When things are made of anything else put in the mix, then you will have to sweat to sustain it. When things are made of the Spirit, there is the life of the Spirit that sustains it, that brings it to fruition, that brings it to completion. You're so helpless when things are birthed by the Spirit that you are only a participant as you are directed because there's nothing you can do. Your diligence and work ethic is seen in your obedience and your ability to endure the long haul. That aside, what results from the flesh has to be sustained by the flesh. You have to put in the work. You'll also find that things that are birthed in the flesh have a tendency to decay. John 6.63, the flesh profits nothing, it decays. The spirit gives life. You'll find that the things produced in the flesh will turn upon the things produced by the Spirit. You see this in churches, you see this in denominations. You see this in Christianity, you see this in the kingdom. The very things produced by the flesh now turn against the things produced by the Spirit. Because things produced by the flesh are slave to the world. Things produced by the Spirit get their orders from somewhere else. A whole different system. Things produced by the flesh do not require faith. Things produced by the Spirit require oodles of faith. Things produced by the flesh are dependent for survival on the systems of the earth and on mammon. Things produced by the flesh create fear. Things produced by the spirit create helplessness. There are two imperatives. Was there any other question or just one? Okay. Don't it? Okay. Uh, so God charges Abraham with two imperatives. The first one is walk before me. And the second one is, be blameless. These are the two imperatives given to Abraham, and it's the same thing that's being given to us today. Walk before me, be blameless. Walk before me, be blameless. And if we do, then God says there are two resultant God actions. And the God actions are, I will establish... My promise, I will multiply you, or I will make you fruitful. And with regard to this global movement where at least two generations are going to be affected because of the thousands and thousands and thousands of ordinary 12s to late 30s that will be drawn into the kingdom, city by city, nation by nation, church by church, that'll suddenly recognize, that'll suddenly taste and recognize God as so different, so absolutely attainable, so present. That promise that God wants to establish and that promise that he wants to multiply across the earth, while not dependent on us, if we walk before him and if we are blameless before him, we will be able to participate in it fully. And I have every intention of us doing that. And so let's look at the two charges that uh, have been given to us. Guys, although God's covenants are unilateral, as in, as in he's the one who initiates it, he's the one who establishes it and sustains it, 
Although God's covenants are unilateral, it needs accountability from both partners. Eh? It needs accountability from both partners. So here is what God is saying to Abraham. Abraham, if you conduct yourself this way, I will establish and multiply you. And he's saying that to Acts 29. Acts 29, if you conduct yourself this way, I'll establish the promise I've given you and multiply you. And you can be full-fledged full partners with me in what I'm doing. I'll do it anyways. Because I'm going to avert disaster on earth. I'm going to rescue generations. I'm giving you first dibs at this. But if you conduct yourself like this, I'll have you as full partners walking with me. So let's look at walk before me first. What does it mean to walk before me? It's not walk behind me. It's not follow me. It's not uh, walk with me. It is walk before me. What do you mean walk before me? To walk before me means walk faithfully before my eyes. Walk faithfully before my eyes. Before my eyes. Walk faithfully before my eyes. As in someone walking in front and God is watching as you walk. And he's saying, walk before me. And the idea is that of a devoted, faithful servant. Devoted, faithful servant to the king. Devoted, faithful servant to the king. That's the idea. Servant to the king. That's the sense of the word. Walk before me like a devoted, faithful servant to the king. The word faithfulness has perhaps three components to it. And here are the three components. Fidelity, as in, um, the best way to describe fidelity is to think of what infidelity is and then think of the opposite. Fidelity, obedience, endurance. Fidelity, obedience, endurance, that describes faithfulness. To be faithful is to have a fidelity to someone that you are being faithful to. Not out of fear, but out of an alignment of heart. Obedience is part of faithfulness because you cannot be faithful without being obedient. Because if you are not obedient, what are you being faithful to? And the third one is endurance because it is insufficient to be obedient or to have fidelity for a certain period of time or during a time when things are really going well. What about the times when things are dry, when nothing is happening? These are the three things that make up faithfulness. And to walk before me, God is saying, hey, can you walk faithfully before my eyes like a devoted faithful servant walks before the king? Just walk faithfully before my eyes. Let me give you examples to help you understand people like this. First example that comes to mind, Elisha. Guy knew how to walk before Elijah. I tell you these names and you'll get an idea of what I mean by walk when God says walk before me. Elisha. Won't leave, man. Second Kings chapter 2. Being told again and again, stop, go back. You've come as far as Jericho. You've come as far as Gilgal. You've come as far as the Jordan. Leave. But he will not leave. He walks before him saying, come what may. I am not leaving. I'm going to walk with you. It is this commitment that is so intense that nothing phases you. You leave family, possessions, wealth, work. To follow the one that you have committed to. Is this a big ask? Not really when compared to what Jesus did for us. But is it a big ask in today's world? Yes. The strange thing is, even though we call it radical Christianity, the Bible says once you've done this, you should sit at the table and say to the Lord, but we are nothing but unprofitable servants who have just done our duty. This idea of radical Christianity exists because the rest of Christianity is very non-radical. (laughs) 
Elisha is the first example. Ponder on this, hey, later. Another guy that you haven't perhaps read or heard of for a while is Jonadab or Jehonadab. He's in Jeremiah 35. Jonadab of the Rechabites. Jonadab of the Rechabites. Jeremiah 35. Jeremiah 35. These people give flesh to the word, uh, walk before me in faithfulness. Jeremiah 35. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord during the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. Go to the Rechabite family, invite them to come to one of the side rooms of the house of the Lord and give them wine to drink. Verse 5. Then I set bowls of full of wine and some cups before the men of Re the Rechabite family and said to them, Drink some wine. But they replied, We do not drink wine because our forefather, Jonadab, son of Rechab, gave us this command. Neither you nor your descendants must ever drink wine. Uh, verse 12. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, Go and tell the men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem, Will you not learn a lesson and obey my words? Jonadab, son of Rechab, ordered his sons not to drink wine, and his command has been kept. To this day they do not drink wine because they obey their forefather's command. But I have spoken to you again and again, yet you have not obeyed. Verse 18. Then Jeremiah said to the family of the Rechabites, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. You have obeyed the command of your forefather, Jonadab, and have followed all his instructions and have done everything he ordered. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Jonadab, son of Rechab, will never fail to have a man to serve me. This is the idea, that here is Jeremiah, one of the greatest prophets that lived, and he calls the Rechabites on the command of God and says, Hey guys, here, have a drink. And they say, no, despite being told by a man who is supposed to be the ultimate prophet that was alive at that time. Why? Because they had committed to obedience, to a command given to their father by God for them as a tribe to keep. This is what walk before me faithfully looks like. Another picture is that of John. The only disciple that was there at the cross. John's gospel is the only gospel that is a true witness account of the crucifixion. Everybody else had to get their version from somewhere else. But John, what he says about the crucifixion and what happened from Jerusalem to uh, the cross and thereafter was a true eyewitness account because he was the only one who was there, man. Which is why in John chapter 19, verse 27, Jesus has the ability now to hand his mother over to John and say, Mother, here is your son. Woman, here is your son. Son, here is your mother. And he hands her over. Walk before me. Here was an allegiance or an affinity of heart in this young man's life that had him stand there. Even though he ran from Gethsemane, he finds his way back into the very thick of things where everyone else had disappeared. And he was the younger of the bunch, eh? the youngest probably. And then there is Paul. That guy was something else, man. Once he would have a heavenly vision, he would not budge from it. Guys, remember one thing, and I remind myself again and again and again, Jacob, once you have received something you know is of God, it is not open to amendment. The only one who can amend it is the Holy Spirit. No one else has the right to amend it. Neither your mentors, nor your friends, nor the church, nor the world, nor any pressure. Your mentors can ask questions and say, but why are you doing this? How does it uh, line up with scripture? How does it line up with how the kingdom works? But once you have clarified how it works, and you just can't say, oh, God said. Now, anything God says must match up with Scripture, eh? But you can't amend it. I love what Paul says in Acts chapter 26. Acts 26. <laughs> he's, he, he, he's talking to King Agrippa. 
And he says, at one point in, uh, in the message, it says, tell me, King Agrippa, how can I be disobedient to the heavenly vision? So, let me read Acts 26, verse um, maybe 14 to 20. Acts 26, 14 to 20. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice, I'm reading from the NIV, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand up on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people, from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes, turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. Let's read the same thing from the message. Starting at verse 14. We fell flat on our faces. Then I heard a voice in Hebrew, Saul, Saul, why are you out to get me? Why do you insist on going against the grain? I said, who are you, master? The voice answered, I'm Jesus, the one you're hunting down like an animal. Verse 16. But now up on your feet, I have a job for you. Listen to this Acts 29. These are words for us. These are words for us. These are words for us, church. Listen to this. But now up on your feet, I have a job for you. I've handpicked you to be a servant and witness to what's happened today and to what I'm going to show you. I'm sending you off to open the eyes of the outsiders so that they can see the difference between dark and light and choose light. See the difference between Satan and God and choose God. I'm sending you off to present my offer of sins forgiven and a place in the family, inviting them into the company of those who begin real living by believing in me. What could I do, King Agrippa? I couldn't just walk away from a vision like that. I became an obedient believer on the spot. I started preaching this life change, this radical turn to God, and everything it meant in everyday life, right there in Damascus, and then went on to Jerusalem and the surrounding countryside, and from there to the whole world. This should be like an anthem for us. It's not possible, man, to be disobedient to the heavenly vision once it is given. This is what is meant by walk before me faithfully. So if that's what walk before me faithfully means, let's look at what it means to be blameless. What does it mean to be blameless? So the first thing is, blameless is not sinless. Blameless is not sinless. Take that to heart. Blameless is not sinless. Blameless is a reflection of God's character. So it would be like you looking into a pool of fresh crystal water and you see a reflection of God's character, a reflection of God's nature. That's what blameless looks like. So how do we define blameless then? We define blameless as very little gap between profession and practice. Very little gap. In God's case, it's no gap. Very little gap between what you profess and what you practice. Very little gap. And I've said this before. Uh, at, uh, at least many of you have heard this before, but uh, the word sincere comes from a um, Latin word sign seer, which basically means without wax. And the way the word came about is in those days they used to uh, sculpt uh, beautiful f um, statues, and some were done by master craftsmen, and then they would be taken, and uh, they would um, uh, they would just try to make copies of this. And people who were not skilled at making statues would make statues out of clay. And eventually, once they made it, cracks would appear in the clay. And uh, the way they would cover the cracks was to take wax and put it on the cracks so that it doesn't look like there are cracks. 
And then what would happen is you would take these statues home and you would put them next to your fireplace because you didn't have light then. And uh, halfway through the night, you would see the wax begin to melt off the statues. And so statues made by master sculptors would carry a tag which said sincere, which means without wax. And that's how the word sincere came to pass. I love this story because we are called to be without wax, blameless, without wax. There must be very little gap between what I profess and what I practice. I must bridge that gap. I must bridge that gap in any area where I think and know something and where I am not that. We'll talk about that. But um, the idea of blameless is one, very little gap between what you profess and practice. Two, a transparent, honest life. A transparent, honest lifestyle. Very hard, eh? Both these words are so hard to um, live out. A transparent, honest lifestyle. This was what was said of Job, that Job was a blameless man. What it means when it says Job was a blameless man was to say, Job 1.1 says that, Job was a blameless man. As in there was something about him where what he said was what he practiced. That he was honest and transparent. That he was unblameable in the way he lived a life according to the standards of holiness that existed then. The same thing is said of um, Enoch. So much so that in Genesis 5.24, Enoch was so blameless in his ways that he got rescued from the process of death. Genesis 5.24, and then Enoch walked with God and he was not because of how blameless he was. This is highly valued in the eyes of God. The same thing is said of Noah, Genesis chapter 6 verse 9, that Noah was blameless before God and he got rescued out of the flood. There is something that connects blamelessness with salvation and therefore a blameless people are really good at, at serving salvation too. Not only do they experience salvation, when you, whatever you experience you can then distribute. Otherwise you've got to go buy it from somewhere. There's a connection between being blameless and enjoying the benefits of salvation. Some of the thoughts that I had with regard to how to then Jacob begin to act blameless is Micah 6 8. Micah 6 8. How will this church learn how to walk blamelessly? Practice Micah 6 8. Act justly, show mercy, do justly, show mercy, and what's the last one? Walk humbly. Beautiful, eh? Act justly or do justly, show mercy, walk humbly. Or Philippians 2, 14 and 15. I learned this when I used to teach Sunday school in Bahrain. There was a song by um, I forgot the name of the group, kids group. It says, do everything without complaining, do everything without arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without complaining and arguing. Do, do everybody together now, everything. The point being, one of the ways that we can walk in blamelessness, and this is so fascinating, is by not complaining and not arguing. Very odd, eh? That complaining and arguing unravels blameless living. These are practical ways you can begin to work out. And then the last one is Psalm 15. Psalm 15 verse 1 and 2. Now what I found fascinating about Psalm 15 verse 1 and 2 is that blamelessness in Psalm 15 verse 1 and 2 is absolutely connected with the words I speak. It says, hey Jacob, are you someone who lies? Are you someone who deceives? Are you someone who uh, speaks harshly? Are you someone who uses your words to slander, to gossip? 
Are you someone who does that? Because if you don't do that, can someone open the door for Jane? If you don't do that, then um, you are blameless. There's something that our words have to do with blamelessness. Try practicing this, church. Bridge the gap, eh? Wherever you find a gap between what you profess and what you practice, bridge the gap. Blessed are you if you have people who will point it out. If you don't have people who, you, who will point it out, ask yourself the question, why don't I have people that point it out? Let me say that again. Bridge the gap between what you practice and what you profess. And if you do not have... And blessed are you if you have people that point it out. And if you don't have people that point it out, then ask yourself the question, why don't I have people that point it out? Start there. Bridge the gap. Bridge the gap between what I know and how I behave. Bridge the gap between what I know and how I behave. Bridge the gap between what I face and how I respond. And bridge the gap between what I know God is calling me to become and uh, where I am presently. These are three areas where it will be great to be blameless. One, bridge the gap between what I know and how I behave. I know I have to be kinder. I'm not pulling out examples out of the air and trying to do a hypothetical. I'm talking about real stuff in my life because I, I went through this list. So I know I need to be kinder. And part of kindness includes being patient. But it is one thing to know it, Jacob, but how are you doing in terms of behaving? And when I catch myself finding, uh, knowing that, yeah, I know I should be kinder, but I'm not behaving kindly, I realize there's a gap. And that gap, if it's not bridged, um, doesn't bring me into a place of blamelessness. Please examine yourself. You know, have you noticed how when I tell you a fault in my life, I'm t I usually tell you a fault that presently exists. I don't tell you a fault that existed six months ago that I have fixed. That's a tendency we have. Eh? We talk about faults that we fixed six months ago and now you have come to a place where um, you're godly. Nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. But sometimes it's important to pinpoint faults that presently exist. Because now people know whether you're actually changing or not. Otherwise, people know only after you have changed and then they doubt it too. The next one is stimulus and response. How am I doing with things that come against me? And uh, am I... Am I responding to it correctly? I find that there are so many situations that are coming in my life where when the stimulus comes, I am not in a place of rest and therefore I'm not able to exert the kind of faith I want to. And I'm working hard at it so that anything that comes my way, the first place I'll go to is rest so that I can exert faith and respond. It is impossible to exert faith without moving into a place of rest. Faith that does not come out of rest flails like crazy, quoting scripture, hanging on for dear life, hoping that God will come through. That ain't faith, man. That's a desperate Hail Mary. And then there's the prophetic and the present. Bridge that gap. What has God said about who he is saying you are, what he's calling you into? And then you look at your present and I have a word uh, called disco-doubt. That's a mixture of disco discouragement and doubt. Not important. It's just something that um, I occasionally use. Uh, disco-doubt is when I'm both discouraged and I'm beginning to doubt because what God said 
uh, it ain't happening. And I'm thinking to myself, did God really say this, man? Because nothing is happening. The, what the prophetic, my prophetic and the present don't watch, a match. And it begins to become discouraging and I begin to doubt it. And that is something that I want to bridge the gap between where I do not go here, where I will not be discouraged, I will not doubt. I'm just giving you three areas in my life, bridge the gap. I, I, I'm excited about being blameless. Because I know being blameless, go ahead uh, Jane, you can still go through without being on camera. Yeah. Jane is passing by, can you see her, can you see her, can you see her, can you see her, no you can't. So whenever there's a gap, invite, sorry, whenever there's a gap, identify it. After you identify it, confess it as in tell someone about it. Tell God yes, but if you have someone you can tell, tell them about it so they are aware of it. Invite the Holy Spirit into it. Invite the Holy Spirit into it. And then delight in repairing it. 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 Guys, gaps, you must, you must be delighted to repair it. I, I, I'm delighted to be blameless. In these three areas, I'm delighted to be kinder. Delighted to walk into a place of rest. Delighted to not be discouraged when things take time. Always remember, guys, when it comes to Christianity, delight must precede discipline. Delight must precede discipline. If you first say, oh, I've got to be disciplined in this, I've got to practice this, without delight in it, man, it'll turn to sawdust in your mouth. You know why athletes are able to discipline themselves the way they do? Because they delight in the sport they are playing. They love their hockey or they love their running or they love their swimming. And the love is so intense that any amount of discipline does not hurt. It's only in Christianity it seems like, oh, I got to do this somehow because the Lord will bless me or the Lord will do this for me. I got to. If there is no delight, discipline sucks. Because it's so not fun doing it. It's like recycling. Unless you're delighted in recycling. Which some people strangely are. They'll have these neat bags, a brown bag, a green bag, a red bag. I'm so confused by the bags right now. Let me conclude. One of the ways we repair gaps is by finding out, Father, is there a principle I can introduce into this gap? Is there a promise that I can introduce into this gap? Father, can you give me the faith I need to restore myself to a place of absolute kindness where out of me will flow Micah 6, 8. Show mercy, walk humbly. Show mercy, walk humbly. Show mercy, walk humbly. Oh God, there's a principle there. There's a promise there. I'm going to exert faith for restoration in that area. And then immediately start practicing it, eh? And if necessary, seek the help of others. But bridge the gap. Why is this important? Because there are two imperatives God is giving us. One, he's saying, hey guys, walk before me. Second, be blameless. And what will happen if we follow these two things? I will establish my promise and I will make sure that after establishing my promise, I will multiply you. Three things happened to Abraham after this incident. One, instead of God promising him a son, God promises him thousands and thousands of descendants and then promises him a son. In Genesis 15, God promised him a son and then said, there'll be thousands of descendants. In Genesis 17, God reverses it. He says, I'm going to give you thousands and thousands of descendants. And then he says, I'm going to also give you a specific son. I think that's some of the, one of the things God wants to say to Acts 29. Acts 29, it's really not about you. I'm going to create thousands and thousands of uh, people that come out of what you will be doing. Oh, and by the way, I'll bless you too. Go ahead. Yeah. How can we depend on God to show up when we are 
Say that again. Yeah, how can we depend on God to show up when we are? Uh, how can we depend on God? How can we depend on God to show up when we are learning to rest? In something that has a short worldly timeline. Um, yeah, so when things have a short worldly timeline, I do two things. One. I regardless depend on God and accept him, expect him to show up because he knows it's a short worldly timeline. And then the second thing is I diffuse the short worldly timeline and do not accept the pressure of the short worldly timeline because that makes me frantic. And then the third thing I do is having done everything, I now make the decision as best as I can because the decision has to be made. And I trust God for the outcome because I've done everything I'm required to do. I'm not resting. This is a very hard statement to make and it's often untrue of me. But in the back of my head, I know this. I'm not resting and walking in faith because I want an answer. I'm resting and walking in faith because it pleases my father. It's easier said, harder to walk it. But here's the thing. I'm not resting and walking in faith because I deserve an answer now that I've met that contractual ob obligation. I am resting and walking in faith because I know that it pleases my father. The outcome then is usually splendid because he says that I let the lines fall in pleasant places. It's one of the hardest Christian disciplines to learn, to be able to trust the father and not get the results you want and not be upset about it, resentful about it, regretting um, the trust you put or questioning the trust you put. It is one of the hardest things to do. It's legitimately hard. Eh? Jesus at one point said, if it is your will, can you let this cup pass? But at least in the back of our heads, if we establish that as a, as a solid bedrock, we can always go back to it. One of the things God does to Abraham after he gives him this promise is he changes his name. It's in Genesis 17 that his name changes from Abraham to Abraham. I want to say to us that there is a name change coming for us. I'm not talking about uh, changing the name of Acts 29. I'm just saying a name change is coming our way. There will be a difference in character. There will be a difference in the way we worship, the flavor of our worship, the flavor of our approach to the world, the flavor of uh, our mission, our work, uh, how we engage things will change. There is a name change coming. And the third thing Abraham uh, has happened to him with uh, God is God confirms the agreement that he has signed um, with uh, a mark. And in Abraham's case, it's circumcision. And God does that, eh? Whenever he starts something new, he always confirms it with a sign. Be it the rainbow, be it circumcision, be it the mark on Cain's head, when Cain rebelled and fled to the desert, God put a mark on him. Or be it Aaron's staff that budded so people knew who had authority. God always gives a confirming sign. My desire is that God give us corporately a sign of his uh, intent. I've personally um, experienced so many unmistakable, undoubtable signs over the last three or four weeks in my life, some of them um, is the reason I'm saying things like global movement, revival. I wouldn't dare say these words, man, if it wasn't for the fact that God has confirmed these things. I remember after God showed up and did something that, I, that makes it hard for me to doubt his intent, I, I remember writing down, you have kept your side of the bargain, Lord, 
and now you can have my money, my time, my will, my strength, and do as you please with it, and I will obey. I have no reason to hold back from you. You must have all of me all the time, O gracious God, O sovereign one. I wrote that down after I was so sure that, shucks, God, you're up to this and you're involving us. I pray that we have a corporate witness that we can look back and say, we remember the day God did that and we know that for sure. Yeah. We might have a midweek meeting. Just wanted to um, give you a heads up on that. I don't know when during the week, but we most likely will have a midweek meeting. And then we'll have the speak services on Saturday. Um, otherwise, we're done. So let me just pray. Gosh, man, it's only two hours. What's happening to me? Yeah. Changes, changes. Okay, let's pray. Father, I want us to um, say to you that we want to walk before you like Elisha did like Jonadab did, like John, your disciple did, and like Paul, obedient, fidelity because of a heart-to-heart -heart alignment, endurance, unable to amend or disobey the heavenly vision that you have given us, that you have given me. I want to walk before you. I want to walk before you with your eye on us. I want to give you what you deserve. I want us to give you what you deserve. It's a privilege. It's an honor. Thank you for, as it says in the message version of Acts 26. Thank you for choosing us for this. We're grateful. And then we want to be blameless. We want to be blameless. Could you look at all the, the entirety of the church and those connected with us and could you give us this gift, O oh God, Holy Spirit? Could you give us this gift of a desire for blamelessness? Could you, could you give me this gift of being transparent, of being honest, of the gap between what I profess and what I practice becoming so narrow that even Jeremy wouldn't be able to squeeze in between? Could you do that, Abba? I want this blamelessness. I want for Acts 29 what it means to be like Job. My God, that guy had audacity. He sat there for days on end, covered with sores and boils, under the barrage of words that were legit, that his friends were speaking, but yet were not legit, because he knew he was blameless before you. What courage about, what audacity. But I'm blameless, I'm blameless, I'm blameless. Job 29 or Job 19, he talks about his blamelessness. Oh God, if I could begin to say those words. Or like Enoch, who walked with you. Father, it is a desire, it is a burning desire to walk with you. Not being absent, but being present, walking with you. Or like Noah, called to build things that can rescue the earth. Jesus, grant your people. See, you are the one who's initiating these desires, so I'm quite confident that you can complete these desires too. We put down complaining and arguing. I put it down. We put down unjust acts, unkindness, lack of mercy, lack of humility. 
We put down our words that do not honor people, honor you. Oh God, give us blamelessness. What would it look like if my life was actually transparent and honest? Ah, if I'm already a sweet-smelling offering, my God, Father, what would it be like if these things were added and offered? Could you do this for us as a church, please? So that you can change our name happily. So that you can change our name happily. But more than that, so that you can do the two God actions that result when a people walk before you and are blameless. And the two God actions are, I will establish my promise and I will multiply you. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands. Because you said that we will be forebringers of a revival that will be followed by the wind and the fire of the Spirit. This revival will be different because it will not just be about power, but it will be about a purity and a devotion that the earth has not seen. Two words you use, purity and devotion, blamelessness and walking before you. Sheldon, could you just sit on the keyboard and we'll sing an old song called uh, um, For it's only in Played on D. Your will that I am free. Jesus, all for Jesus. All I am and have and evermore shall be. Shall we sing that? Church, sing it, eh? Let it be your prayer and closing song. Jesus, all for Jesus, all I am and have and evermore shall be. Jesus, all for Jesus, all I am and have and ever hope to be. All of my ambitions, hopes and plans, I surrender Thee. Into your hands All of my ambitions, hopes and plans I surrender all into your hands For it's only in your will that I am free for it's only in your will that I am free. For it's only in your will that I am free. For it's only in your will that I am free. Jesus, all for Jesus, all I am and have and ever hope to be. Jesus, all for Jesus, all I am and have and ever hope to be here's the benediction perhaps you should uh, rise up to your feet even at home and in here why? because it says so that's the only reason why
Acts chapter 26, verse 16 to 20 from the message. But now, up on your feet, I have a job for you. I've handpicked you to be a servant and a witness to what's happened today and to what I'm going to show you. But now, up on your feet, I have a job for you. I have handpicked you to be a servant and witness to what's happened today and to what I'm going to show you. I'm sending you off. I'm sending you off to open the eyes of the outsiders so they can see the difference between dark and light and choose light. See the difference between Satan and God and choose God. I'm sending you off to present my offer of sins forgiven and a place in the family, inviting them into the company of those who begin real living by believing in me. What could I do, King Agrippa? I couldn't just walk away from a vision like that. I became an obedient believer on the spot. I started preaching this life change, this radical turn to God and everything it meant in everyday life right there in Damascus, then went on to Jerusalem and the surrounding countryside, and from there to the whole world. Bless you guys. Keep an eye out for the midweek meeting.